So Romans chapter 6. So I will read from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Our focus this morning will be verses 20 through 23. So Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, last time we began to look at this concept that Paul introduces here in Romans 6 of being slaves of righteousness. And Paul begins this section, uh, verses 15 to 23, by posing a question that might arise from what he had said earlier in verses 1 through 14. Namely, the question of what we call licentiousness, or this idea that you can kind of live any way you want to because you are free from the law. So when Paul says you are not under law but under grace, a person can rightly raise the question, then shall we sin since we are no longer under law but under grace? Since there's no law controlling us, Are we free then to just kind of live however we want because we're now in a state of grace? We're now in an age of grace. In other words, is it permissible to sin is what the question is really asking. And then Paul answers this question by using the metaphor of slavery. And in general, a slave obeys his or her master. That's what a slave does. Okay, I mean, we don't need to get any deeper than that. And in particular, what Paul is getting at here, we are either slaves of sin, which leads to death, as he says earlier, or we are slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Then he goes on to say, but by the grace of God, we have been set free from our slavery to sin, and we have been made slaves of righteousness. So by the grace of God, God took us out of our slavery to sin. He took us from our bondage, just like he took the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt and freed them and brought them into the wilderness to worship him. So he takes us from our slavery to sin and brings us into a servitude under Christ, a servitude of righteousness. So then Paul finishes that section in 15 through 19 by saying in verse 19, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, Now, because you're freed from sin, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness or sanctification. So the command is clear. Since we're no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness, we must now 
present our members, that's our bodies, the whole and the parts, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That was two weeks ago. Now, before we get into the passage this morning, I want to talk a little bit about what I'm going to call the myth of autonomy. Okay, we brought up this subject a couple weeks ago, the idea of autonomy. Uh, And the reason for this is that Paul makes it pretty clear in this passage that there are only two options for each of us. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. There's no middle option. There's no third way. Both are forms of slavery. One of them is a form of slavery to a cruel and harsh taskmaster, sin and evil and unrighteousness, which seeks to use and abuse us. Sin promises much, delivers little or nothing. And the other form of slavery is to a kind and loving master who seeks our best interests, whose burden is light, whose yoke is easy, as Jesus says in Matthew 11. And we touched upon this briefly last time as well, that when we said freedom from sin is not freedom to sin, right? Freedom from sin is not a freedom to sin. And biblically speaking, no one is autonomous. Now that word autonomous, we described it last time. Autonomous or autonomy is derived, it's literally pulled right out of the Greek. It just means self-law or law unto oneself. In other words, I am the master of my own destiny. That's what autonomy is. Now, it's fine to speak of autonomy in the realm of politics or other human relationships, and we do this all the time. We seek to be autonomous. Uh, you know, when think about back in the revolutionary days, 200 some odd years ago, the British colonies here in this in this area uh, in what will become America, they wanted autonomy. They wanted self-rule from England. They wanted to separate from them. They wanted to be an autonomous country. So this idea of autonomy is not necessarily bad or evil, particularly when you're talking about like in the world of human relationships and things like that. But theologically and biblically, There is no such thing as autonomy. There is no such thing as self-rule. There is no such thing as a person being a law unto himself. Now consider this with me for a moment, because we believe and we teach in this church, it's in our confessional standards, and we proclaim it from the pulpit, and we teach this, that God is sovereign, right? We, We teach the sovereignty of God. Article 13, if you are interested in the Belgic Confession, which you can find in our hymnals, uh, Article 13 of the Belgic Confession says, in part, that we believe that the same God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. So this is speaking of God as creator and as ruler of creation. And it, it, it actually t- speaks the truth to a couple of lies here that he, you know, that when God created all things, he didn't just forsake them. So that's, if you're familiar with this kind of philosophical idea, this is the idea of deism. Has anybody heard of deism? Okay, deism is the sense that, yeah, God created all things. He wound up the clock and just left it. 
And then God goes off, you know, to Pluto or whatever, sits back, kicks up his legs in his hammock and starts sipping some pina coladas while the world just kind of goes on its own. That's what he says here. But the Belgian confession says he did not do this. He did not forsake them. He did not give up his creation to fortune or chance. And really, let's face it, fortune and chance are just words that we use when we don't understand what's going on. You say, well, it was just it was just lucky. No, it just means you don't understand what was going on behind the scenes that led to this set of circumstances coming to be. But the confession says that he rules and governs. He rules and governs his creation according to his holy will so that nothing. Okay, now nothing encompasses how many things are included in nothing. Nothing, right? Zero. Zero things are included in nothing. So he, he does so and governs them according to his will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Okay? So that means everything happens in this world by his appointment. And if you're curious, you can look at Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9 and 10. They talk about this subject a little bit as well. Now this idea of the sovereignty of God, of course, is not just in our confessional standards, because our confessional standards are, by definition, summaries of what we believe the Bible teaches. So the confession isn't going to say something that is not found in Scripture. So when we look at Scripture, just a few verses that will bear this out, you can write these references down if you'd like. We're not going to turn to each every one of them. But in Acts chapter 17, verses 25 and 26... This is Paul's sermon in Athens when he's on Mars Hill talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill. And in that section of the sermon, in verses 25 and 26 of Acts chapter 17, Paul says, Nor is he, that is God, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So there Paul is telling these people on Mars Hill that God not only created all things, but he also determined their appointed times, the rise and fall of kingdoms, how nations will move from area to area. All of this is determined by the holy will of God. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3 The author there writes, and he, this is Christ now, Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So here we're talking about Christ now. Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. A couple of verses from Proverbs. 16 verse 1, the Solomon more than likely says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So man makes his plans, right? But the plans are determined by the Lord. So we're free to make our plans, but you know, if you ever try to make your plans and you realize things start to come up and they, your plans get ruined, <laughs> basically that's the Lord basically overseeing all of our plans. And further on in chapter 16, verse 9 of Proverbs, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's the same 
concept, just worded differently. So we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Interestingly enough, we're going to go over this tonight when we look at Revelation 2. But there's that section in Acts 16 when Paul is on his second missionary journey with Silas. And he wants to go in a certain area. And he goes into Asia, but it says that the Holy Spirit prevented him or forbade him to go into to Asia. And then he says he wants to go into Bithynia. And he says, the Spirit of Christ prevented my way. So then they go to the city of Troas. And he sits there for the night. And he has a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. So he took it as he should have, as God's will, that he wasn't to go to Asia, wasn't to go to Bithynia, but he was to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel there. And that's what happened. So here, again, man is planning his steps, or man is planning his ways, but the Lord is directing his steps. And as we said, nothing, right? Nothing happens in this world without its appointment. Zero things are contained in nothing. So the sovereignty of God then knows no bounds. The sovereignty of God covers everything in the universe. It doesn't stop at the border of our autonomy. We direct, we plan our ways, we plan our steps, but God's sovereignty does not stop at my plans. Okay, God's sovereignty does not stop when I set my mind to do something. He doesn't stop at the border of our autonomy. The late great R.C. Sproul was fond of saying there are no maverick molecules in the universe. And he's right. Because if there is a single solitary subatomic particle that is outside the sovereignty of God, then what happens? God is not sovereign. (laughs) God is not sovereign if there is one single piece of this universe that he does not have control over. However, the history of humanity ever since the fall has been a nonstop, never-ending quest of autonomy. We seek to be free from God. We seek to live our lives on our own terms. We are like the wicked citizens in Jesus' parable of money usage that he tells in Luke 19. This is the, it's like the parable of the talents. But in, that, in Luke's version of that parable, he says that there was a king who went to a faraway country to assert his authority there, but the people rebel. He says, we will not have this man be king over us. And then he tells the parable of the talents, and then at the end he says, now bring those worthless servants who did not want me to rule over them, and I will cast them into outer darkness. But that's, that's us, in our, at least in our fallen original nature. We do not want this God to rule over us. We want our own autonomy. But far from being autonomous, fallen mankind is more accurately described as rebellious. So we're not autonomous. We're not self-ruling. We are in rebellion. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, using the example of the, of the Revolutionary War, you know, we called ourselves freedom fighters. What did the British call us? We were rebels, right? We were rebels against the crown. So, you know, the winner gets to write the, the history, but... Yet to fall into the fallen mind, the myth of autonomy is very, very, very strong. Sinful man thinks like the man in the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley, where at the end of that poem, he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's how we think in our fallen state. 
Sinful, unbelieving man thinks because he either doesn't believe in a God or gods or doesn't acknowledge a God or gods that he is left to determine his own fate. If I don't believe in God, then I'm the master of my own destiny. I am the captain of my soul. But if there is a theme song that captures the myth of autonomy, then my, my vote for a theme song for autonomy would be Frank Sinatra's classic hit, My Way. <laughs> right? Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. That's a great song. But unfortunately, that's going to be the theme song in hell. A bunch of people who think they could do it their way. And God's going to say, no, you didn't do it my way. God is the only one who can actually sing that song with any legitimacy, right? No, God cannot be sovereign if man is autonomous and vice versa. So that's why as we come into our passage here this morning, Paul refers to those who have been freed from sin, not as as autonomous free agents, but as slaves of righteousness. You have a new master now. That's what Paul is trying to get through here. So he gives us that command that you see in verse 19. And as we come into verses 20 to 23, He's going to give us the ground or the basis for that command that he gives in verse 19. So as he wraps up chapter 6 here, he's going to show us the outcomes or the results or the fruit of these different slaveries. You've got one slavery that bears the fruit of sin leading to death and another slavery that bears the fruit of obedience leading to sanctification and eternal life. Coffee's good. Just, just saying. <laughs> so after the command here in verse 19 to present our members as slaves of righteousness, Paul goes on to show us the result of our past slavery to sin in verse 20, where he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, I always like to point these little things out that you see in the text, you know, the word therefore or the word for. These are words that always point us back to what Paul has previously said in verse 19 in this case, in that command. But moreover, Paul is pointing us back to, or pointing his readers and us by extension, back to their former way of living before they were baptized into Christ in verse 3, or baptized into his death, verse 3, or raised with Christ in newness of life, verse 4, or freed from sin in verse 18. He's pointing us back before all of these things to a time when they were still slaves of sin. So he's saying, remember, when you were a slave of sin, how how did your life turn out? This would be a time for the Christian before they came to Christ, before they were born again. So what Paul is saying here is that the unbeliever, the one who rejects Christ, rejects the Bible and rejects Christianity, is a slave of sin. So far from being autonomous, far from being a law unto yourself, the unbeliever is actually a slave. They just don't recognize it. They don't acknowledge it. But they are a slave. In fact, the only thing Paul here says, the only thing that the unbeliever is actually free in, the only thing they can claim any kind of autonomy to is righteousness. They are free in regard to righteousness. Now, this isn't righteousness in what we call a forensic sense, 
like we learned earlier in chapter 3, where we are declared righteous. We are declared righteous in the sense of justification. We are given by way of imputation the righteousness of Christ through faith. But rather what Paul is talking about here when he says righteousness is a practical righteousness that is our acts uh, or our works, our, our behaviors, things that are pleasing to God and things that conform to his law are these is the righteousness that he is referring to here, a practical righteousness. And what Paul is saying here is that the unbeliever is free in regard to these things. He is free in regard to practical righteousness. The unbeliever is free in the sense that he cannot and he does not perform acts that are pleasing to God or conform to his law. Now, in Pauline fashion, I'm going to anticipate a question that might come up from what I just said. But pastor, I see believers performing acts of practical righteousness and behaving in such a way that conforms to the law of God all the time. How can you say they cannot and do not do such things? This is true, right? Unbelievers do perform acts and behave in such a way that appears, keyword, appears to conform to the law of God. An unbeliever can love their neighbor. An unbeliever can not steal, cannot lie, cannot commit adultery, cannot murder, all these things. But we know as Christians that obedience to the law is more than just an outward conformity to that law, right? We know that. Because we know that because that's what Jesus said, right? That's exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, particularly in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48. In that whole section there, all 28 verses, Jesus is confronting the legalistic pharisaical way of interpreting the law. And he does that by using this formula that he uses. He uses this formula six times where he says, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say unto you, dot, dot, dot. So in other words, he's saying, okay, you were taught this, but this is the way it really is. And he has that authority because he is God incarnate because he is the one who actually gave the law, right? He is the one who gave the law so he can interpret the law, and he perfectly interprets the law. So Jesus is essentially saying, you were taught a superficial, surface way of understanding the law, but let me show you the deeper, more accurate way of understanding the law. And then he proceeds to teach his disciples, those who are listening to him, the spirit of the law. In other words, it's not, a, it's not enough to go around saying, I don't commit murder. A lot of people can say, I don't commit murder. But do you have anger to your brother in your heart? You must check your anger towards your brother. It's not enough to say, not commit adultery, but you also have to check your lustful thoughts. It's not enough to simply provide, as he would say in this section, it's not simply enough to provide your wife with a certificate of divorcement You can only divorce your wife for reasons of infidelity. You can't just make a vow, a loose vow based on anything, but you need to make your yes be yes and your no be no. But the one who is a slave of sin cannot and does not conform to the spirit of the law. 
The unbeliever, to the extent that his or her actions outwardly conform to God's law, does not do his or her righteousness out of a love for God and out of a true love for neighbor. Of course, that is the sum total of the law. Jesus summarizes the law by boiling it down to its essence. The law, the commandments, are essentially this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law is. If you look at the Ten Commandments, that's how they break down. The first four, that's your love for God. The last six, that's your love for your neighbor. The slave of sin cannot do this. In fact, the slave of sin is free from doing this. That's what Paul says. They were free in regards to this righteousness. And that is the only freedom, in quotes, italics if you want, that is the only freedom a believer, unbeliever, has. And Paul, in verse 21, now continues his description of the believer's past life as a slave of sin when he says, So when you were a slave of sin, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now the question that Paul asks his readers here is one that could be directed to us as well. So when you were a slave of sin, what benefit did you receive? That's what Paul's question is. What fruit did you bear? Now, the unbeliever who thinks he or she is autonomous believes that he or she is free to live any life, uh, to live life any which way they want. They're under no constraints. They have cast off the shackles of religion. They are free now to pursue their every desire. And this is the life of the unbeliever. And if you remember way back when we looked at Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and we talked about how that person, the person who rejects God, the person who suppresses the truth of God and unrighteousness, what happens to that person? Well, the wrath of God is being revealed against that person and is being revealed against that person in the sense that God gives them over to their sin. It's like, okay, you want to live a life of disobedience? Have at it. I'm going to just take the constraints off and you can go and do whatever you want. Paul now kind of comes back to us like, what kind of fruit did you bear? What kind of benefit did you receive from that life? Nothing except shame that leads to death is what he says. Now that word fruit, karpos, speaks literally of like fruit, like grapes, <laughs> or oranges, anything you can pull from a tree or or a vine. It can also be fruit as in offspring or progeny, the fruit of of the womb, the fruit of your loins, however you want to call it. But it can also metaphorically speak of an effect or a result, which is what Paul is using it here. So in other words, I invested in the stock market and it bore the fruit of many dividends. Or I lived a life of wanton sin and it bore the fruit of shame leading to death, as Paul will use here. Now, usually in Scripture, karpos, fruit, has a positive connotation. The fruit of the Spirit. Or if you are the vine connected to, if you are the branch connected to the true vine, you will bear much fruit. Or the, the seed of the, the parable of the seed, when the seed is cast into the fertile ground and it grows up, it bears much fruit. So fruit is usually used in a positive connotation. But here, Paul is using it as the result of a life lived. In this case, the result of a life lived in slavery to sin. The sinful lifestyle that was once enjoyed 
by the unbeliever. How did that work out for you? We see this in many people who have lived lives of licentiousness in their youth, coming to Christ again later in life, and they can point back to it's like, yeah, I, I raised some hell when I was younger. I, I lived a life of partying and drinking and doing all sorts of weird things, and, and now I'm living, you know, I'm actually you know, experiencing the physical effects of that life of sin, you know, however you want to call it. They have, you know, some kind of disease or they have some kind of ailments or whatever based on that lifestyle. It takes a toll on you. So Paul is asking, what benefit did you derive from all these things, things for for which you are now ashamed? Now, you know, again, going back to the law of God, if you think about it, the Ten Commandments, the various other laws given by God, they're not arbitrary rules given by God, right? It's not like God is sitting up in heaven one day and he's got the Israelites surrounding Sinai and they're like, you know, the angel's like, okay, God, what are you going to tell them? It's like, well, I don't know. Let's come up with some rules. Okay, how about uh, let's not cheat, let's not lie, let's not steal, let's not commit adultery. That'll ruin their fun. No. The person who looks at the law and sees only rules to restrict my freedom and limit my fun is not looking at the law of God correctly. Think of it this way. God is the master designer. Okay, He is the master architect. He created all things. He created human life as well. His law then can be considered like the manufacturer specifications. Okay, You buy an appliance. You get the hand guide, the, the specifications, how to operate it, how to put it together. You know, all the, now, many of us were like, well, we don't need the guide. <laughs> I'm going to put it together any way I want to, and I'm going to ignore all the warning lights, but they're there for a reason. They're manufacturer specifications. In fact, God's law is meant to lead to the good life. It is meant to lead to a life of, of blessing and of fruitfulness. And of joy. That's what the book of Proverbs mainly is about. If you follow the law, generally speaking, the law will lead to good results. Not always. That's, but the book of Proverbs tells you if you follow God's law, this is generally speaking how things happen. Just some passages here. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments why? For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now notice this is follow, don't, he doesn't say follow my commandments and you'll live a, lo- a short, ugly, brutish, you know, beastly life. No, if you follow my commandments, they will bring you good life, long life, peace they will add to you, length of days and years. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, very famous passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. What's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line, right? So when he makes your paths straight, he is making your paths easy. Proverbs 3, 13 and 14. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. So if you find wisdom, which is basically living your life according to the law of God, you will find something that is worth better than silver and worth more than gold. 
In Proverbs 4, verses 20 to 23, My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Again, this idea, if you follow the commandments of God, they will bring life. They will add health. They will bring joy and peace and long days. But the idea is if you follow the law of God, it will lead to the good life. The fruit of slavery to sin leads to shame in this life and eventually ends in death. And that's what Paul says in this uh, in this verse. The fruit or the benefit of a life of slavery to sin ultimately leads to death. There are Proverbs that talk about this, too. If you do not obey the law of God, etc., etc. Now, going back to the analogy we used earlier of God as a master designer and his law as a manufacturer of specs, if we live our lives outside of the norms of God that God has set in place, what do you think is going to happen? Let's use another example. If you operate a vehicle against a manufacturer designed for its optimal performance, what happens? What happens if you don't check and change the oil in your vehicle regularly? What happens if you don't check the tire pressure or the tread life on your tires regularly? What happens, what do you think happens if you ignore the various warning lights that come on in your dashboard in your car? If you ignore those regularly? Usually nothing good happens when you do that, right? And the same thing if we continually live a life outside of the bounds of God's law, that life or lifestyle ends in death. So Paul now contrasts our former way of living as slaves of sin to our current way of living now in verse 22, where he says, but now... Again, that's my favorite word there, but. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness or slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. This is something Paul does frequently in his letters. He uses a then but now kind of technique. So he says, this is how things are going then, but now after you come to Christ, you got this. So then but now. So you were slaves of sin, living lives that were bearing fruit, leading to shame and death. But now, and the but now is that having been freed from sin, you are now slaves of God. Now, there's two things in this verse to notice. They're kind of the same thing, really. It's like two parts of one thing, but I made them two things. There's the having been set free from sin and the having become slaves of God. Again, we're going to go grammatical here. Both of these verbs are in the passive voice, which means you are not the one doing the action in these voices. You are not setting yourself free from sin, and you are not, setting your, you're not becoming willingly a slave of God. These are things that have been done to us or done for us. Again, think about this for a moment. The Bible uses two very telling Metaphors to describe our lives in sin. Here in verse 6 is one of them. We are slaves to sin. The other one is in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says you were dead in your sins and trespasses. So you've got the metaphor of slavery and you've got the metaphor of death. 
That's, that describes our life in sin. Now, how much freedom and liberty do you think a slave has? Or how much agency and vitality do you think a dead man has? Again, answer is zero, right? The answer to both these questions is none. That's why all of the metaphors of salvation speak in terms of us as being passive recipients of the salvation. We have been born again. How much control did you have over your first birth? Zero, right? We have been set free. We have been made alive. Again, now my wife works as an EMT. So if there's somebody who is unconscious and needs to be resuscitated, that person is not like, okay, here, let me, give me the paddles. I'll do it myself. No, they're just like laying there waiting for the person to administer CPR and to use a defibrillator or whatever to bring them back to consciousness. So we have been born again. We have been set free. We have been made alive. We've been given sight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things God is doing to us and we are passive. God redeemed us. He bought us out of our slavery to sin by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And now we are, we have become slaves of God. He bought us. We now belong to him. Okay, we are his slaves. We are his servants. We serve God in his purposes now. We have been brought out of a state of rebellion and now we are into, brought into a state of increasing obedience and righteousness leading to life. Again, remember what we said earlier. God is sovereign. And that's why our freedom to sin or freedom from sin is not a freedom to sin. Because God is sovereign. He is our master now. And there's an interesting parallel here in this passage, particularly in this verse, but in this passage where we were slaves to sin. And then what what were we free in regards to? We were free in regards to righteousness. So a slave to sin is free in regards to righteousness. But the opposite is that a slave to God is now Free from sin. That's, what the, that's the parallel that Paul draws in this passage. Slaves of sin equals freedom from righteousness. But freedom from sin equals slaves of God. And now that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, we now have fruit, the produce, the produce of our life, the product of our life, the effects of our life now leads to holiness. Increasing holiness. We've been set free for a purpose, and that purpose is, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as we live lives of thankful obedience to God for all that He's done for us, not only are we bearing fruit of personal holiness in our lives, living a life that makes our practice match our position in Christ, and that's what sanctification is. Right? We are justified. We are declared righteous before God. Sanctification is now taking our life, which is currently a mess, through increasing holiness, working so that we become what we actually are. Okay? Or as I like to say, it's a working out of what God has already worked in us. That is sanctification. 
So we are bearing fruit of personal holiness in our lives. We are living according to the manufacturer's specification, and that way leads to eternal life. And then here in verse 23, Paul closes this section uh, in a very fitting way in verse 23 when he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is more than just a great memory verse, right? I mean, this is a great memory verse. And it is also one of those verses that they say is on the Romans road. If you've, if you've heard of the Romans road, this is one of those verses in the Romans road. But this single verse encapsulates the entirety of Paul's argument by making three vivid contrasts here. First, there's the contrast between two masters, sin versus God. There is the contrast between two methods, wages versus gift. And then there is the contrast between two outcomes or two results, death versus eternal life. And moreover, note the use of that word wages. It's a word that was used to denote the soldier's pay. So a soldier in the Roman army would get his wages for serving, you know, emperor and empire and all that stuff. The point to take away from this is that death, is that the death that we see as a result of our sin is earned. (laughs) That's what we merit. That's what our works earn. Okay, so if we try to earn righteousness, if we try to earn our way to heaven, the paycheck that we're going to get at the end of the day is death. So, you know, Corporation of Heaven, Inc., you know, pay to the order of Carl Goebelman, who attempted to earn his way to heaven by his own works, the salary of death, signed God. Okay, (laughs) kind of what's going on there. Contrasting to that is the fact that eternal life is a gift of sheer grace. It is not given to us as wages, for we could never earn or merit merit it. It is freely given to us as a gift. And it's a gift that is only given to us by God on the basis of our union with Christ. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Union with Christ. Well, that is Romans chapter 6. Next week, Lord willing, the 13th, we will start Romans chapter 7.